Every September 29th, Silent Movie Day provides an opportunity for academics, aficionados, programmers, archivists, and enthusiasts to gather around their shared appreciation of this unique period in visual arts and culture. It's also a time to rally around silent film initiatives for preservation and access, as well as raise awareness of the smaller percentage of films that remain from this period of the motion picture industry. Welcome everyone to the Golden Silent Films Podcast and our special Silent Movie Day Plus. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silent Films Podcast, a safe haven and silver screen rest stop for weary travelers making their way through the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival and those listening from afar. This episode will serve as a travelogue of sorts, navigating a week's worth of silence in the Steel City. Or should I say, the Silent City. Not only will we give the pertinent movie info as we go, but also pass along a bit of Pittsburgh's silent cinematic history. Also, while we're zipping around town, we will be celebrating Silent Movie Day proper. Before we scurry off to screens across the great city of Pittsburgh, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media purchase. As usual, head on over to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for all you folks on Twitter or X, just follow at GoldenSilence1 or just search Golden Silence Cast and we ought to pop up. All these screen names and sites will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. We would love to have you on board at both social spaces. You'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode reveals, and other fun film-related materials. And great photos of our amazing and official podcasts, Gizmo and Soda. Also, if you're listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or both. Our show has been around for three years, and we still remain stuck on 11 reviews on iTunes. We would love to see that number grow, and you awesome silent film fans out there can make it happen. All of those ratings and reviews help immensely. Live your best review leaving life and help our show grow and reach fellow silent film fans. Posting those reviews gets us more exposure in the world of podcasts, and lets us know how we can improve. As always, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. Subscribing to the Golden Silent Films podcast is also a solid course of action. While our output can be irregular, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment new content drops, it will go straight to your listening device of choice. We are closing in on the end of our third season and don't want you to miss a second. Through the years and seasons of this program, we have covered a handful of live events. Most of those screenings have occurred on Silent Movie Day, which falls on September 29th every year. We wanted to do something similar this year, but circumstances ended up changing and sending the yearly Silent Movie Day episode on a whole new course. It's a traditional Silent Movie Day episode, but on steroids, I guess you could say. Before we get to the big change here in Pittsburgh, let's take a look at Silent Movie Day for any of you fine folks out there that may not be aware of its existence. According to the Silent Movie Day organization's website, you read... Silent Movie Day is an annual celebration of silent movies, a vastly misunderstood and neglected cinematic art form. We believe that silent motion pictures are a vital, beautiful, and often powerful part of film history, and we are united with others in the goal to advocate for their presentation and preservation. Now this is an incredibly important cause for sure. So many films have been lost over time. According to David Pierce in his book, The Survival of American Silent Feature Films, we get numbers put to that concept. He writes, Only 14% of American silent feature films survive as originally released in complete 35mm copies. Another 11% also survive in complete forms, 
but in less than ideal editions. Foreign release versions or small gauge formats such as 16mm. Pierce continues, Another 5% of American silent feature films survive in incomplete form, missing at least a reel of original footage in formats ranging from 35mm down to an abridged 9.5mm home library print. The creation of Silent Movie Day was a joint effort of three lovers of silent cinema. Brandy B. Cox is a senior film archivist at the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Film Archive and co-founder of the Silent Treatment e-digest and screening series in Los Angeles. Stephen K. Hill is a motion picture archivist at the UCLA Film and Television Archive and co-founder of the Silent Treatment e-digest and screening series in Los Angeles. The third member of this founding crew is Pittsburgher Chad Hunter. Hunter is the director of the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society and Festival. He previously worked as a film archivist at institutions such as the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York. His work in film exhibitions includes serving as manager of the Little Theater in Rochester, New York, as executive director of the nonprofit Hollywood Theater in Pittsburgh, and as a senior director of the Rangos Giant Cinema at Carnegie Science Center. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It is really fantastic having a local connection to such a great organization. There definitely is a fondness for and interest in the silent film world. I can vouch for that just based on the number of listens for this program. Going into making it, I had very low expectations of listener numbers, but I have been blown away by the response from all of you fine listeners out there. Hunter sees that trend towards classic modes of entertainment as well. I mean, Hunter tells me, I think in this increasingly complex digital world, people are becoming more interested in things from the analog days. Vinyl, old electronics, old content, silent movies, live music with silent movies, 16mm, 35mm projection. Now, now that we've got the explanation and awesomeness out of, of Silent Movie Day out of the way a bit, let's talk about the big event that really changed the course of this episode. So here in Pittsburgh, it has been a regular occurrence over the last few years on Silent Movie Day to catch a screening. Nothing too wild or crazy. You can look back onto the show's catalog and catch those episodes. One was Hitchcock's Blackmail and the other was Don Juan. Both fun films and fun experiences. This year, however, the stakes were raised by Chad Hunter and the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society. This year was the first ever Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival. From Sunday, September 24th until October 1st, 2023, Silent film fans were treated to a wide variety of silent films playing in a wide variety of venues. To say this announcement was big news at the Golden Silent Films podcast home office is an understatement. We eagerly went to the event list and started planning out our itinerary. After a lot of planning and marking up a poor innocent calendar to heck, our plans were set. Like any festival, this one took a lot of planning. Hunter started that ball rolling over a year ago. I started having conversations with venues to see if they were interested, and all signed on, Hunter told me. And it was a lot of work for one man, Hunter continues. I worked with each to determine what was the best to show at their venue. I worked on putting together a trailer, posters, and handled a lot of social media promotions. I also did a half dozen or so interviews for local outlets, but I was excited to do something special to celebrate Silent Movie Day in Hits- here in Pittsburgh to really make it a big deal. Now, unfortunately... We were unable to attend every event. As much as we wanted to, seeing everything was a bit out of reach and unrealistic. Not to make you outside of Pittsburgh folks jealous, but here is a lineup for the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival's events that we were unable to attend. The week started off with Buster Keaton's 1923-hour hospitality with live accompaniment from Pittsburgh Area Theater Organ Society and organist Jay Spencer. 
Next up was the Hitchcock classic, The Lodger, a story of the London Fog. Hitchcock did a lot of great stuff during the silent era, and The Lodger is one of my all-time favorites. Next in line was a series of 1920s avant-garde films on 16mm with a live score performed by David Bernabo. That was followed by the 1920 thriller, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, with live accompaniment by the Pittsburgh Composers Quartet. The closing event of the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival was the 100th anniversary to the day screening of Charlie Chaplin's 1923 film, A Woman of Paris, on 35mm, with Chaplin's own score on the print. This was made even cooler with an introduction from Chaplin expert Dan Kamen. Like I said, it was a killer week of silent movies. Us Pittsburgh silent film fans were eating good for sure. Now since we've talked a bit about the shows we missed, how about we go a little bit more in depth into the movies we saw and the great experiences we had. The first stop of our whirlwind tour of Pittsburgh's silent film festival starts off in a seemingly mundane but awesome location. While our later stops will hit some of the most famous, historic, and prestigious theaters in the city, we are starting off our experience with a screening of Harold Lloyd's legendary film Safety Last at the Mount Lebanon Public Library. This wasn't just a normal run-of-the-mill library, it was incredibly pretty inside and out. Definitely a place you want to go and hang out. If you live nearby and require the services of a library, do check this one out in Mount Lebanon. I hadn't been in a library for forever, and this one offered so much, I spent all the time I had pre-show looking around, making note of the library's upcoming events. There were so many cool events we wanted to go to. On the movie side of the ledger, I spent quite a bit of time digging through their movie collection, which was top-notch. If you're ever in the area, head to mountlebanonlibrary.org for more info and a list of their great events. At the risk of having my Silent Movie Membership Club card revoked, I must say I had never seen Safety Last. Sure, I knew a scant bit about Harold Lloyd and had seen him clock hanging a million times, but to sit down and actually experience the film with the crowd, that was a solid no. After tonight's screening as a part of the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival, I can happily report that oversight has been corrected. If you were in the same boat as me or have seen this flick a hundred times, let's get caught up on 1923's Safety Last starring Harold Lloyd. If you weren't able to make it to the library for the screening, there is still a plethora of ways to catch this classic. At the library, we watched the Criterion Collection version. If you don't have it on DVD or Blu-ray, you can catch it on YouTube, uh, HBO Max I think has it, and even Wikipedia, which is actually a solid place to view silence. No matter how you do it, this is a movie to be seen for sure. One of the things I loved about the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival screening was how each one was a full experience. From speakers sharing history and behind-the-scenes info to live musical performances, there is always so much to look forward to, and this screening was no different. The sold-out crowd at the Mount Lebanon Public Library got a great introduction from Chad Hunter, who turned things over to Elaine Wortham of the Dennis Theater, who gave some great Harold Lloyd information to get the festivities started. Since this is an episode covering four films, we're going to keep the film synopses short and sweet. In this film, Safety Last, a boy, played by Harold Lloyd, moves to New York City to make enough money to support his loving girlfriend, played by Mildred Davis. Things don't go to plan, and Lloyd soon discovers that making it in the big city is harder than it looks. When he hears that his department store manager will pay $1,000 cash to anyone who can draw people to his store, Lloyd eventually convinces his friend the human spider, played by Bill Struther, 
to climb the store building and split the profits. But when his pal gets in trouble with the law, Lloyd must complete this crazy stunt on his own. Now, talking about that human spider I mentioned earlier, that is actually the genesis of this film's existence. According to Richard W. Bann in an article for the Library of Congress, which you can find at loc.org, we learn how a stuntman's shenanigans brought this film to life. Bann writes, Lloyd and Roach hired Bill Struther, the human spider that Lloyd had witnessed, and built a story around that stunt, planning to use Struther to double the star. Certain stunts were too risky, even for the exceptionally athletic Lloyd. Lloyd's innate athleticism had recently been compromised when a prop bomb he was holding exploded, causing the loss of the thumb and forefinger on his right hand. I loved this movie. It was so much fun and really had me and the entire crowd on the edge of our seats for the duration of the film. Speaking of the crowd, seeing this movie live and with a sold-out audience really takes a movie and elevates that experience. Seeing Harold Lloyd in all his glory was something to behold. He really did cut himself a very memorable character that really stands out from his fellow silent funny men of the day. There were so many memorable gags in this film. I could really derail this podcast by bringing up every funny bit, but in the interest of time, let's just say there were a ton. The crowd laughed so hard and so often. This really is a timeless film that is as inventive and funny today as it was the day it was released. While we're on the topic of timeless cinema moments, this movie has one of the most famous climaxes in movie history and one of, if not the most, iconic moments in film history. It's a moment that even folks who have never seen a silent movie have probably seen. I was in that boat. Even I've seen a lot of silent films, but I never saw the full context of Harold Lloyd hanging from the clock. One of the most amazing things about this movie is how it ratchets up the tension leading up to the iconic clock hanging. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time Lloyd made that perilous climb for love. Every time Lloyd hit a snag on his climb, I really felt that suspense and anxiety while still laughing at some of the off-the-wall gags that still managed to happen. It was a perfectly done comedy at its highest level, no pun intended. In an essay for silentfilm.org, Jeffrey Vance walks us through this sequence. Vance writes, Lloyd's scaling of the building is a classic sequence in which comedy at its most inspired and suspense at its most excruciating are ingeniously interwoven. The climb is the grand finale to the superb gags that precede it. As, the climb, as he climbs higher and higher, more complex obstacles confront him, from a flock of pigeons to entanglement in a net, to a painter's trestle, to a swinging window, to the clock itself. While Lloyd navigates these travails, Vance continues, the audience's hysteria escalates. It was not uncommon in the 1920s for 1920s spectators to hide their eyes or even faint when watching these portions of the film. Many cinemas reportedly hired a nurse or kept ambulances on call outside the theater. One of the things I loved about this experience was seeing it with other people. Though no one needed a nurse or ambulance, hearing the oohs and ahs really showed the impact of this film's climactic moments. Many of these folks had seen this film before, but they were still living and dying with every obstacle Lloyd overcame. It really was a great example of how seeing a film with an enthusiastic crowd can really up a movie's ante, if you will. Moviegoers then and now had reason to worry and even faint. There were definitely camera tricks involved, but the danger to Harold Lloyd was still terrifyingly real, especially when it comes to the actual hanging from a clock. Jeffrey Vance writes, Audiences naturally assume that Harold Lloyd was actually hanging off the clock hands many stories above the street, and they are correct. 
However, Lloyd was hanging on a clock built on a platform near the edge of the top of a building at 908 South Broadway. Again, the crew used in-camera tricks designed to conceal the platform, which was approximately 15 feet below, out of frame, and the perspective shots to, and perspective shots to make the clock appear on the side, not on top of the building. High-angle shots of the busy streets below contributed to the illusion of height. To this day, the effect is remarkable. Although many techniques of silent cinema appeared dated, the climb is still completely convincing. The clock sequence remains one of the most effective and thrilling moments in film comedy, a visual metaphor for the upwardly mobile everyman of the 1920s and the extent to which he climbs to achieve the American dream. With the movie at an end, it wasn't quite time to head home yet. It was time for more behind-the-scenes scoops about Safety Last from Elaine Wertheim. She had some great stories and insights that led to great discussion with the sold-out crowd. As I mentioned earlier, I knew very little about Lloyd going, and his works going into this, but I left definitely having a lot more knowledge and a taste that I wanted to check out more from Harold Lloyd. It was a great time and it really seemed like everyone in attendance felt the same way. Now, with screening number one in the rear view, we had a few days to relax and take it easy before a flood of cinematic happenings really got going. The historic Harris Theater in downtown Pittsburgh served as our next stop, where we were treated to the Pittsburgh premiere of a new restoration of 1926's The Johnstown Flood. That's right, it was time for a good old-fashioned disaster flick with local flair. Also adding to the ambiance and electricity in the air was the fact that this screening took place on silent movie day proper. There were so many great screenings and events going on that night, all across the country and even internationally. Next year, when September rolls around, do head to silentmovieday.org to start planning your movie-watching shenanigans. Now, the local ties to silent film in western Pennsylvania aren't strictly relegated to this disaster film itself. No discussion surrounding an event at the Harris Theater is complete without a look into the history of the theater itself. In fact, it wasn't always called the Harris Theater. When it was opened on September 14, 1931, it was known as the Art Cinema. It was the first theater in Pittsburgh to commercially show art films. By the 60s and 70s, times got tough for the Art Cinema, which prompted its conversion to more adult programming. Eventually, the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust bought the property where it opened to the public again in 1995 as the Harris Theater. Who exactly is this Harris person, though, you may be wondering? Well, though the name may not be super well-known, John P. Harris is incredibly important in silent movie history. Actually, when you think about it, he is actually super important to movie history in general. In addition to being a Pennsylvania State Senator, John P. Harris was an entrepreneur who co-founded the first-ever Nickelodeon. That name, Nickelodeon, was coined by Harry Davis and John P. Harris in 1905. That was the name they gave to their small storefront theater, which they opened on Smithfield Street here in Pittsburgh. This was the first theater solely dedicated to the showing of motion pictures. These two men were so successful with this endeavor that many business-type folks followed their blueprint and ran with it and opened their own Nickelodeons. Now that is all in the crazy way back past, so let's just go back a couple of weeks into the recent past and unpack the great event that this screening was. As I mentioned earlier, one thing I love about the events put on by the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society is the bonuses that add great context to the film at hand. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but let's start off with the film proper. After a quick intro by Chad Hunter, it was time for, to watch the damn movie. See what I did there? 
My quick intro to this film centers on the restoration of this classic film. In an article for the Tribune Democrat, we learn about the two men at the center of this incredible restoration and preservation effort. Dave Souter writes, Robert Harris and James McCoskey, two prominent figures in cinema restoration, converted the movie from a 13 from a 35mm nitrate film to scanned 4K digital files. McCoskey and Harris obtained the film from the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York. The work they have done is incredible and a labor of love, especially for James McCoskey, which we will dive into here in a bit. Now, the Johnstown Flood itself was released on February 26, 1926, and was directed by Irving Cummings and starred George O'Brien, Florence Gilbert, and a young Janet Gaynor. The basic gist of the movie is this. The Johnstown Flood recreates one of the greatest disasters in American history when, in 1889, over 2,000 people in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, lost their lives in a flood. In her first major role, Gaynor plays a teenage girl, smitten with dashing engineer O'Brien, whose pleadings about the imminent collapse of the local dam are ignored. It's up to Gaynor, though, to ride through the streets a la Paul Revere and warn the townspeople of the imminent disaster. According to the Johnstown Area Heritage Association website, which you can find at www.jaha.org, we read, The importance of the Johnstown flood to film history is difficult to overstate. The special effects of the film combine miniatures and sets to depict the actual historic event of the flood and its aftermath. Pioneering complex techniques. As the distinguished film historian and preservationist Robert A. Harris notes, it was the Star Wars of its day. The Johnstown Flood was also the first starring role for George O'Brien, who had achieved fame as a sports figure and model but had not yet become a major star, and the debut of a young ingenue named Janet Gaynor. Two future stars of Hollywood's golden era have uncredited roles in the film, Carol Lombard and Clark Gable. So, geography-wise, the city of Johnstown is about an hour away from us here in Pittsburgh. The tragedy of that flood is something you hear about in these parts, but I never really delved too much into it. I knew the basic story and realized that the filmmakers definitely took some liberties with the story for various legal reasons, but that in no way negates the film at hand. It's a wonderful movie with a great story and incredible visuals. As awesome as it was to see a film based on local lore, I have to let everyone in on a little secret. Since this episode is a podcast, is something of a love letter to Pittsburgh film, it pains me to say this movie was not filmed in Johnstown, not filmed in Pittsburgh, not even filmed in the state of Pennsylvania. In fact, it was filmed in Santa Cruz, California. Looking back at the flood's sobering details really drove director Irving Cummings to accurately convey the humanity of this ill-fated community. In an article for the Santa Cruz Sentinel, writer Ross Eric Gibson gives the backstory of the location's search. Gibson writes, Cummings told Bob Jones, at the time manager of the St. George Hotel in Santa Cruz, that he was scouting locations in Southern California, but hadn't quite found what he wanted. Jones brought out some photos he'd taken to promote the beauty of Santa Cruz County for the conventions and tourists, somewhere of local industries such as logging. He gave a set of photos to Cummings, who took them back to Hollywood and got raves of approval, especially for Jones's artistic camera work. And it was the filming in Santa Cruz that, in a roundabout way, actually led to its survival, which ties us back into the, thre the thread earlier when we were talking about James McCoskey and his work on this restoration. We turn back to Ross Eric Gibson, who writes, James McCoskey is a Santa Cruz native, 
graduate of UCSC, and now works at Zotrope Studios for Francis Ford Coppola. In his expertise as an archivist and film restorer, McCoskey has always had at the back of his mind an interest in finding and preserving films made in Santa Cruz. One was the 2017 restoration of Mothers of Men, having tracked down the only copy left of a rare 1917 women's suffrage film shot almost entirely in Santa Cruz. This time, he found the only copy left of the Johnstown Flood of 1926, also filmed almost entirely in Santa Cruz County and restored, and restored it in a collaboration with Robert A. Harris. Now, this great screening of the Johnstown Flood at the Harris ended with something special. The nearly sold-out crowd was treated to a post-film talk and Q&A session with Richard Burkert, president of the Johnstown Area Heritage Association. He told some great stories and really put the tragedy into context, as well as talking about the differences, the differences between film floods and real-life floods. It was really an amazing night of film that really opened my eyes to local history and its cinematic counterpart. So, by this point of the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival, our schedule was rapid fire, and we found ourselves in the midst of back-to-back-to-back screenings. This time, we changed up the genre a bit, though, going from a disaster movie the previous night to a war flick this evening, and it wasn't any old war flick on top of that. It was the first-ever Best Picture winner, Wings, from 1927. Before we hop into that movie, let's hop into the theater we were watching it at. And to do that, we are heading to the Lawrenceville neighborhood of Pittsburgh to a movie house we have talked about here on the show before. That would be the incredible Row House Cinemas. Their mission is to create a magical experience through awesome movies, food, and beverages. Through their unique programming, they hope to help build a stronger film community in Pittsburgh. I can testify under oath that they do indeed live up to that mission statement. Like we mentioned earlier, tonight was all about wings. This classic was directed by William Wellman and starred Charles Buddy Rogers and Richard Arlen and Clara Bow. With World War I raging, David Armstrong, played by Richard Arlen, and Jack Powell, played by Charles Buddy Rogers, join the military with an eye toward flying American fighter planes. They leave behind Mary Preston, played by Clara Bow, a local girl who's in love with Jack despite his love for David's girl Sylvia. This leads to rivalry followed by friendship between the two flyboys. Dispatched to France as newly minted pilots, the men take to the skies in one of the war's climactic air battles, and as frantic Mary longs for the safe return of Jack, one of the two pays the ultimate price for his bravery through a tragic case of heroics and mistaken identity. The Golden Silent Films podcast has covered this film at length. And by length, I mean over 90 minutes of behind-the-scenes info and stories from the making of Wings. It is one of our most listened-to episodes, so I know a lot of people out there love this movie as much as I do. And if you haven't listened to it, one of the things you learn by listening to it is why this film is so near and dear to my heart, aside from all the cool stuff that happens on screen. Speaking of those amazing visuals, seeing the film's dogfights on a big screen left me breathless every time a character took to the skies. William Wellman's policy of total authenticity to the aviation scenes really pays off big here. It looks great on television, don't get me wrong, but experiencing these aerial dogfights play out on a movie screen was amazing. And the performances of the actors in the cockpits were really mind-blowing. To know the actors were acting and flying was insane. Especially in a time before GoPros and cell phone cameras, the way this action was captured is crazy and a result of Wellman's meticulous planning. 
Richard Arlen had a bit of flight knowledge going in, but Buddy Rogers learned to fly just for this movie. Also, he could act from cockpit mid-flight. In our Wings episode, we go into a lot more detail on how these scenes were captured, but one thing that never gets old is hearing Buddy Rogers reminisce about his experiences acting in those death-defying scenes. In an interview with the Washington Post's Michael Kernan from October 31st, 1987, we hear some of those stories from the man himself. Rogers, Rogers says, The first thing was I had to learn to fly. We didn't have process shots in those days, of course. When you see me careening around the sky, that's a real sky. I'm really up there. Even when the, pl- even when the flight plans went from mild to wild, it was still Buddy up there. With some assistance, of course. Rogers continues, The guy who was teaching me was a second lieutenant named Van. He was pretty good. When I was supposed to do something complicated in the cockpit, he would get in too and squeeze down out of sight to work the controls. Now, as the years went on, Charles Buddy Rogers would find out that his stunt co-pilot ended up having an amazing and incredibly decorated military career himself. That young pilot Van would end up being General Hoyt Vandenberg, namesake of an Air Force base in California, one that I, oddly enough, knew very well. Growing up in California, I lived in Vandenberg Village, attended Vandenberg Middle School, and took many a trip onto the grounds of Vandenberg Air Force Base. I never knew the backstory of a big chunk of my childhood until digging into the making of wings. It really is a small world out there. Now, our fourth and final but most musical stop on this adventure comes at one of the most historic locations in all of Pittsburgh. We are rolling into the Frick Pittsburgh for a super special combination of events that really added a magical quality to the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival. Shakespeare himself couldn't have come up with a more perfect ending. If you're unfamiliar with the Frick, it is a cluster of museums and historical buildings located in Pittsburgh and formed around the Frick family's 19th century residence known as Clayton. It focuses on the interpretation of the life and times of Henry Clay Frick, an industrialist and art collector who lived there from 1849 to 1919. The whole place is located on five and a half acres of lawn and gardens in the city's Point Breeze neighborhood. This group of buildings includes Clayton, the restored Frick Mansion, the Frick Art Museum, the Car and Carriage Museum, the Greenhouse, the Frick Children's Playhouse, and the Cafe. The Frick welcomes over 100,000 visitors a year. Helen Clay Frick was the driving force to preserve the Frick estate and allowed it to be open to the public after her death. This property is a piece of Pittsburgh history and lore that I drive past nearly every day, but had never gotten around to actually exploring. I constantly see the signs and the banners advertising all the cool events and collections on display, but it took a silent film festival to actually coax me in. Currently on display at the Frick is an amazing exhibit in the Frick Art Museum called From Stage to Page, 400 Years of Shakespeare in Print. Now, I know this may seem out there, but this all ties together, so just stick with us. The Frick website, if you want to check it out, thefrickpittsburgh.org, explains, Printed in 1623, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies was the earliest comprehensive gathering of Shakespeare's plays in print. This exhibit tells the story of the first folio's origins in in the bookstalls of 17th century London and considers the histories of three later lesser known folios published in 1632, 1663, and 1685. The exhibition presents a rare opportunity to see all four folios in one room, offering an extraordinary look at Shakespeare's enduring legacy. 
So with such incredible literary history around you, it only makes sense to see some of those timeless works on the silent screen. In conjunction with the Shakespeare exhibit at the Frick, Chad Hunter and the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society saw a great opportunity to bring some of the Bard's earliest adaptations to an audience. And to sweeten the pot, musician Tom Roberts would be writing original works to accompany these shorts. Musical accompaniment is a crucial part of any silent film screening, according to Hunter. I'm trying to recreate the best experience possible, he explains. During the silent film era, there would have been live accompaniment. As I've said, it elevates the experience to a higher level. It's a combination of the art forms of cinema and live performance of music, which when combined, create a third art form unique unto itself. Musician Tom Roberts has this in mind as well when he sets out to compose a new piece. Roberts explains, The ultimate goal for me is to create an experience for those in the audience to merge within the film. Ideally, it would be like being in a dream. When I compose, I always have this in mind. The event consisted of four shorts from productions all over the world. And when I say these were early adaptations, I'm not kidding. Their production dates range from 1899 to 1910. Filmmaking was still in its infancy at this point, and they all range from a couple minutes in length to 15 minutes. Retelling the Shakespeare story in 10 minutes is ambitious. And if you want to check out these shorts, I believe they do exist on DVD. You can catch them on YouTube and even Wikipedia. Why make any silent film from a Shakespeare play at all, asks author Michael Andrag in an article for the Folger Shakespeare Library website. Andrag continues, one, perhaps two glib answer, is that Shakespeare was a writer to whom it was unnecessary to pay royalties. A better explanation is that Shakespeare's name was a guarantee of high-class entertainment for a medium that from the beginning was considered low-brow and even morally questionable. The first short we were treated to was 1899's King John. King John is the title of the earliest known example of a film based on a play by William Shakespeare. Filmed in London, England in September 1899 at the British Mutoscope and Biograph Company, it was a silent film made from four very short separate films. The filming of King John was produced and directed by William Kennedy Laurie Dixon and Walter Pfeffer Dando. The acting and production design was by Herbert Beerbaum Tree with cinematography by William Dixon. Let's turn back again to Michael Andrake for more details of the circumstances of this early adaptation. Andrake writes, Although King John, featuring actor-manager Herbert Beerbaum Tree, is often called the first Shakespeare film, that claim makes it sound perhaps grander than it is. Originally, some four minutes in length, only slightly over one minute of the film has been preserved, a single shot of the poisoned king's dying throes. In its original form, King John had included three or perhaps four separate scenes photographed for the British Mutoscope and Biograph Company at an open-air studio on London's Thames Embankment. The film was screened along with several other short films at the Palace Theatre on September 20, 1899, the same night that Tree's stage production began its run at Her Majesty's Theatre a ten-minute walk away. King John comes in with a slim trim 1 minute and 15 second runtime. We have seen short films, but nothing ever this short. It literally is one scene. That seems like a difficult task and doesn't seem to leave much time for one to make an impact on the musical side of things. But Tom Roberts would beg to differ. Roberts told me, A short film like King John was easy to do. I composed a two-part thing and it actually fit perfectly. I find that many, if not most, of these films do have a musical component built in. As a composer, I simply need to find where their groove is or was. 
For 1908's The Tempest, we are going to stay in Britain. This short was directed by film pioneer Percy Stowe, a pioneer in trick photography. This short film was made by the Clarendon Film Company and founded by Stowe and Henry Vassal Lawley. It was written by Langford Reed and was the second screen adaptation of The Tempest. Stowe's film can be said to be the first cinematic version designed specifically for film and, its 12, and in its 12-minute length manages to convey some of the magic of Shakespeare's play with fun characters and incredible visual tricks. Like I mentioned earlier, fitting an entire Shakespeare story into a few minutes is a monumental task. Certain shortcuts and omissions were necessary to fit in with the constraints of filmmaking of the day. It's also fascinating to think that a wordsmith like Shakespeare would have his works put to film with no speaking and little in the way of intertitles that accurately represented the source material. In an article for The Guardian, writer Pamela Hutchinson takes us into the world of squeezing a whole play into 12 minutes. Hutchinson writes, The filmmakers got creative with their stagings, cutting out subplots and scenes to allow a streamlined version of Shakespeare. This way, they learned how to tell stories on film and how to adapt from literary sources on a small scale first. And they also relied on the visual tradition, which meant Shakespeare scenes were instantly recognizable to their audience. There is also evidence that cinemas would make use of film explainers, reading text from the plays, or specially prepared quotation-heavy commentaries distributed in the trade press while the movie was being projected. Look carefully at some of the scenes in these silent Shakespeare's, and despite the absence of sounds, the actors are clearly acting out soliloquies line by line. The words in these silent films are never entirely missing. The third film of this unbelievable experience is the 1910 Italian production of King Lear. The film was directed by Girolamo Lo Savio and starred Ermette Novelli as King Lear, Francesca Bertini as Cordelia, and Olga Giannini Novelli and Giannina Chiantoni as Lear's daughters. The name of Ermette Novelli was one that was new to me as I watched this short. He definitely portrayed a very interesting King Lear. Ermette Novelli was born on March 5th or May 1st, 1851. In an article from the February 17th, 1907 edition of the New York Times, we learn about his early acting gigs and his most memorable feature. The article reads, Ermette is said to have made his debut in an insignificant role at the age of eight. He reached his 25th year before his name began to be familiar in the larger cities, and even then he was known mainly for his phenomenally long nose, which never permitted a spectator to forget his face once it had been seen. His work on the stage would start in the comedy realm before moving on to more dramatic roles. Novelli was an incredibly versatile actor with over a hundred roles to his name by 1907, he spent a lot of time portraying characters right out of Shakespeare's plays, so playing King Lear in front of a camera was not really too big of a stretch for the Italian actor at all. His first great tragic successes were Louis XI, Hamlet, Othello, and The Merchant of Venice. Conditions had indeed changed from the early days when he and his wife traveled through Europe and to South America in a repertoire of comedies, the New York Times tells us. Ermette Novelli died in Naples, Italy, in 1919 at the age of 67. As we talk about Lear himself, it turns out that the characterizations of both King John and King Lear in their respective stories really had a big influence on Tom Roberts and his musical compositions. The mood of King John and King Lear are what I use to create my music. They were both pretty miserable, Roberts told me with a laugh. This King Lear short contained a piece of music that really stood out to the composer. 
The tune I was really proud of was the scene where Lear compares the heart of his daughters to a stone, Roberts explained. As someone who was there taking it all in, I can vouch for the poignancy of the scene as it intertwined with the music of Tom Roberts. One thing to keep in mind is that in addition to squeezing a full play into a few minutes, you also had to fit an original composition into the same amount of time. This Herculean task fell to Tom Roberts, but for him, it wasn't about fitting a lot into a short time. He brings this up by way of a really cool story he shared with me about his time on tour with the legendary musician Leon Redbone. Roberts explained, I learned a lot from Leon Redbone. His philosophy was, less is more. We were at the end of a long tour in New England with a large accompanying ensemble. The rest of the orchestra left and Leon and I were to do the last few shows. Leon told me, there are now less musicians and you would think that now you have to play more, mu more notes to fill up the space, but that is completely incorrect. The less players equals less music. Now that really cool story leads us perfectly into the final film of this showcase, A Midsummer Night's Dream, from 1909. Roberts continues, So what does this have to do with silent film accompaniment? Pretty much everything. Midsummer Night's Dream is a good thing to discuss. I originally thought that my score would be a wild, coro, ragtime, tango fusion, but as you heard, it was not. It simply didn't work. The magical aspect of the film requires more dreamy-style music like what I composed for Puck. The tradesmen were a challenge. They were hu they are humorous, but playing stupid Three Stooges-type music would kill that scene. When Puck turns the weaver into a donkey, in the wrong hands it would be disastrous. I created a theme for the tradesmen that conveyed the humorous aspects of them by use of unusual intervals within the melody. And when Puck turns the weaver into a donkey, I restate that theme in the left hand while imitating the brain of a jackass with another slightly dissonant phrase. As Titania sees him and falls in love with him, I incorporate very dreamy impressionist lines in the left hand while continuing the brain in the right. For the transformation, I simply run it backwards. Now this is a really fascinating look behind the curtain for someone like me that knows very little about music. It really gives you a new perspective on these classics and how adding music is an incredibly tricky but rewarding process. Being that when we jumped into the music talk right off the bat, let's run it back a bit and dive into the film proper. A Midsummer Night's Dream was directed by Charles Kent and J. Stuart Blackton. It was the film, first film adaptation of the Shakespeare play as far as I could tell. The film runs in at about 11 minutes in length and was filmed in the summer of 1909 for a winter release several months later. The plot of the film is as follows. The Duke of Athens decrees that Hermia shall forsake Lysander, played here by Maurice Costello, in favor of her father's choice, Demetrius. The lovers elope into the woods, quickly followed by Demetrius and his love, Helena. The town tradesmen, meanwhile, rehearse a play in honor of the Duke's betrothal to Hippolyta. Back in the forest, Titania, queen of the fairies, quarrels with Penelope, who avenges herself by sending Puck, portrayed by Gladys Houlette, away with a magic herb, which, when dabbed on the eyes of a sleeping person, shall make the victim fall in love with the first person to appear after awakening. Soon, Lysander and Demetrius are smitten with the wrong girls, and Titania has fallen in love with Bottom, the egotistical leader of the tradesmen, whom Puck has turned into a donkey. When Penelope discovers all this mischief, she lifts the spell, and the wedding of the Duke and Hippolyta can proceed. Now, the first thing I want to mention when we're talking about this film and the making of it is the directing of J. Stuart Blackton and the acting of a young Gladys Hollette. In our Nicotine Princess episode, we talk about both Blackton and Hollette in depth. 
In fact, both films were made at roughly the same time, both being filmed in the summer of 1909. Here you can really see more of the special effects and camera trickery that J. Stuart Blackton specialized in. Though in this film, nothing's as high level and uh, revolutionary as the stuff he did in Nicotine Princess, it's still pretty cool to see on screen and its uh, use in the narrative. Now while we're on the topic of cast and crew name dropping, let's talk about the rest of this film's cast. If you were a stage acting aficionado, went to the plays, you knew pretty much everyone in this cast. Pretty star-studded by your standards. Tristan Edelman of Media.com explains, One of A Midsummer Night's Dream's other lasting important facets is its abundance of stage talent. The film's cast is made up of fairly recognizable stage names for the era, including Maurice Costello, his daughters Dolores, who would go on to marry John Barrymore, and Helene in cameo fairy roles, and Rose Tapley. Tapley is often cited as one of the first recognizable leading ladies in a film at a time when movie stars did not exist per se due to their being no accreditation. Florence Turner, the Vitagraph girl, also stars as Titania. She was never really identified by her name, as her epithet suggests, but the identifier was used due to her increasing popularity. Now this is where we dive back into the silent movie connections to our fair city. The Costello name has its roots in the city of Pittsburgh, roots that reach all the way to Hollywood of today. It all started with Maurice. Now, Maurice Costello was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Irish immigrants. His father, Thomas, died while repairing a blast furnace at Andrew Carnegie's Union Iron Mill when Maurice was just five months old. During his run, Costello was one of the biggest names on stage and screen. And one of Maurice's two daughters, Dolores, was also born in Pittsburgh on September 17, 1903. In, 19, in 1926, she was named a Wampus Baby Star, one of Golden Silent Film Podcast's favorite organizations to talk about. And she was nicknamed the Goddess of the Silent Screen by her first husband, the actor John Barrymore. And she was the mother of John Drew Barrymore. She would receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on February 8, 1960. This film and the overall event was really enjoyable and was the perfect end to our Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival week. Seeing actual folios of Shakespeare's work from the 1600s and films over 100 years old really brought me closer to the timeless work of the Bard. Hearing the live accompaniment provided by Tom Roberts was the icing on the cake, and really everything just came together for a perfect, perfect day. Now, seeing these films over the course of a week really hit home with me that for all of these films that exist, so many more are gone forever. The fact that silent movies get screenings and press and a day to celebrate them really shows the profile of these cinematic classics are on the rise. One of the reasons I started the show was to advocate for silent cinema, and I couldn't be happier to see their popularity grow. The more folks that watch these movies lead to more folks who fall in love with them and eventually push for their preservation. Now with every silent film you see, so much had to go right to keep that movie alive to this point where we can sit back and enjoy it. Chad Hunter tells me, For many, I see them as minor miracles that they survived and have been preserved. The odds were against them. In some cases, they survived precisely because they were popular titles and therefore had more copies made and distributed, so they were more likely to have a print in someone's collection. In other cases, it was just dumb luck. But then to have them shown on screen with music and appreciation? Well, that's just fantastic. Hunter continues, The early and rising success of Silent Movie Day and the first Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival means there's still room for growth, which is amazing. 
Our goal is to further raise awareness about silence and silence with live music to new generations. So with the marquee lights coming down on a week-long celebration of silent movies, it is time that the Golden Silent Films podcast gang finally gets some sleep, some rest, and recuperation before getting back to the show production grind. We hope you enjoyed this little journey through the cinematic hotspots of Pittsburgh and maybe enticed you to maybe make the journey here next year and watch some classic movies with us. Before we say goodbye and farewell, we must thank everyone, every person, every venue involved with the Pittsburgh Silent Film Festival. A big thanks, extra thanks, goes out to Chad Hunter, who is incredibly gracious to share some of his insights with us for this episode. If you're interested in learning more, head to the PittsburghSilentFilmSociety.org where you can find out all kinds of information on screenings and events in the Pittsburgh area. Another really big bonus thank you goes out to Tom Roberts for being so awesome and helpful with all of his great info about his work. He is incredibly talented, and if you want to keep up with his work, head to www.tomrobertspiano.com. It was a great week with a lot of great people putting in time, effort, and love to keep the movies we love alive. Do you like our coverage of silent film live events? How did you spend your silent movie day? Are there theaters event and events in your neck of the woods flying the flag of silent movies for us to experience and spread the word of? We here at the podcast love travel and want to see movies everywhere and anywhere. What are your favorite movie houses to catch a silent in? Let us know all that and more at the various social media spots of the Golden Silent Films podcast. It's been a long week of events, so if you have forgotten... We are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think of this episode. What silent and silent-related movies, past or present, do you want us to look at next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we need your input for our future episodes here as we close out Season 3. You can always find us at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence one on Twitter slash X, whatever it is. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, do subscribe do rate, do review. It does a lot for our visibility and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really appreciate all of your incredible support and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes. We hope that you had as much fun on this journey as we did traveling to make it and watching movies. Don't forget that. Lots of lots of movies were watched. So with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And don't forget... The silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. I see no better way to end this post credit sequence than with this quote from Chad Hunter. He says, I'm sure many people from the silent industry thought that their life's work and art were destined to be forgotten forever. But hopefully, that's not the case, and for those that survive, we can share and appreciate them 100 years on. <laughs>